Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Acquisition is an eternal function to keep the government running. It's also constantly changing. My next guest knows the ins and outs, having just left the General Services Administration as commissioner of its Federal Acquisition Service. For what buyers and sellers can expect in the year ahead, Sonny Hashmi joins me now. Sonny, good to have you with us. Tom, it's great to see you. And I guess it's a little early to talk about your plans, but you're not retiring into the sunset, are you? No, I I am not. I'm actually very excited uh, that I will continue to serve the federal government, uh, but from the private sector. Uh, I'm uh, looking forward to my new role, which I'll be sharing more news on in the next few days. But also, it's going to be an opportunity for me to continue to work with the government agencies to help with their digital modernization. So I'm very excited about the next chapter, and I'm also very proud of the work we've done over the last three years at uh, the Federal Acquisition Service. Yeah, GSA is certainly not the GSA of our fathers and grandfathers in terms of the contracting opportunities it offers. And maybe you're biased, but review what you think are some of the strengths that it brings towards headed into 2024. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. So first of all, I do want to take this moment to recognize the incredible work that the the whole team at the Federal Acquisition Service does day in and day out. We are about 4,500 strong, uh, globally located, and every one of the leaders that I've worked with and have uh, admired and partnered with are just incredible leaders. They are doing incredible work every day. And all the great uh, successes that we've had over the last few years uh, is 100% attributable to the work that they've done. Obviously, I can't speak to the plans we'll forward. I don't want to speak for the agency now that I've departed my role. However, I can say that there's incredible plans uh, underway uh, to continue to deliver more value to our our customers, to create a much more equitable, inviting, successful marketplace for suppliers, and to continue to make it easy for uh, people to do business with the government. We've made significant strides over the last year. I think you recently saw an article that we crossed a $100 billion a year market uh, uh, share threshold, which was somewhat uh, unheard of just even a few years ago. But it's all due to, and, and, and when, I, when I talk about that number, it really translates into the value that we add for customers. It's a, it's a testament to the products and services we build and uh, the service we provide. Um, what I will say is that you're right. Uh, acquisition is not a, you know, I think some people when they think about acquisition, they think about this paper-based process and bureaucrats sitting and signing documents and pushing paper. It can't be further from the truth. Acquisition is the primary way where the government gets access to the products and services that it needs to deliver on the mission. And it's data-driven process. Um, 100% of acquisition, the heart of the heart of the uh, smart modern acquisition is data. And uh, we've done significant work over the last few years to get our data uh, position strong. Ultimately, if the government has insights into what is being bought, where it's coming from, who's producing it, what the carbon impact is, what the competitive pricings are, if you have this metadata and your access uh, to it, you can make much smarter and sound decisions around how you go to the market, how you position yourself, how you acquire the services sure. and products you need. And so that's going to be the name of the game. In fact, the new OMB memo, recent OMB memo, I should say, the Better Contracting Initiative, really underlines that point in a very succinct way. 
Well, let me ask you this. The GSA, of course, has some very large and successful government-wide acquisition contracting vehicles. So do several other agencies. Are there too many, do you think? Yeah, so that's a great question, Tom. Uh, we ask that question of ourselves almost every day. Ultimately, it doesn't really benefit anyone if we have a lot of duplicative you know, contract vehicles. In fact, it adds burden to the marketplace, to vendors and suppliers, and it uh, adds so much more complexity to acquisition officials when they're thinking about where to uh, go and get their services from. However, there's a certain amount of competition that is good, that that does uh, allow agencies to continue to focus on innovation, continue to focus on delivering the right uh, product service mix. So it's a question that I would defer to OMB. Ultimately, OFPP decides which contract vehicles are authorized for government-wide use and which ones are not. As you know, certain agencies have the ability to create uh, and manage government-wide contract vehicles. I do think that in the case of, uh, for example, IT services, you know, I think it's incumbent upon all of us to have a deep look around uh, what is what is the right mix and what are the differentiations between these contract vehicles? Because historically, there's been, you know, a valuable uh, competition in the space of, for example, products where you can create competition through highly specialized pools of like products and categories. But uh, I do think that each one of these contract vehicles is becoming more and more expanded and they're starting to overlap a lot. Uh, and so ultimately you see the same suppliers show up in multiple contract vehicles. And I'm not sure what the taxpayer value is of uh, having multiple ways to access the same product or service. So while I can't speak to the specifics and of course ultimately uh, relies on OFPP to continue to look into this area, but I do think uh, a new new assessment is uh, probably timely now. And just a real quick question. When GSA is operating its GWACs, do you, do they talk to NIH and to the soup people at NASA? And do you ever compare notes? Because, I mean, it is one government. Absolutely. We do all the time. Uh, in fact, as you know, Laura Stanton, who runs the GSA, FAS's ITC organization, is the government-wide category management manager for uh, technology products and services. And Laura does an amazing job to develop that coalition and continuously works very closely with NITAC or um, NIH, with NASA, with even uh, DOD and DLA to make sure that we are at least aligned in how we're going to market. The world of acquisition and especially the world of the marketplace we're living within is changing very fast. New products and capabilities are coming to market like AI and machine learning. And we also have new risks that are emerging. So supply chain risk management and illumination becomes a very important discipline. We also have global events that are causing disruptions to the supply chain. So preparing for things like global pandemics and natural disasters and making sure that we have resiliency in the supply chain becomes important. So all these things cannot be done agency by agency. We have to share this data with each other. At GSA, we have uh, built a very sophisticated supply chain risk management program, as an example, where we see insights deep into the supply chain on risks that exist at the product level or even at the company level. And we proactively share that information with interagency groups, to DOD, with DHS, with DOJ, and, of course, NASA and NIH, so that they can they can cleanse their supply chain and identify those risks in their uh, marketplaces as well. Ultimately, we want to make sure that, uh, you know, of course, each agency has different, you know, slightly different but adjacent uh, responsibilities. To me, it's important to kind of think about the user's perspective, a user in this case being a buying agency or a supplier. And if we are creating duplication that adds burden 
to those users, then I think it's time to uh, reevaluate. Uh, but yeah, communication certainly happens, collaboration happens. There's a lot of good uh, alignment. Now, in fact, NASA, in many cases, uses a lot of the work that we do on the schedules program to build upon when they issue contracts under soup. So I'm not too worried about the lack of collaboration, but I am worried about, or I continue to be, continue to question what is the right mix Sure. I would say, too, of, of what is the right balance in this environment. We're speaking with Sonny Hashmi. He recently left government as commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service at the General Services Administration. Another question about the supply base. What's your sense of the strength of the industrial base that serves the government? Because, you know, in the case of defense, they've got some real issues that people don't want to be in that market. People are leaving that market. And it's a crucial time for defense. What about the civilian side of government? There's two or three meta challenges that we're seeing. These trends have been kind of underway for the last 10 years or more at this point. One of the troubling trends that we noticed uh, and we are all tracking is that there is a gradual reduction in the number of small businesses in the supplier base uh, for the for the government at large. So we've seen this atrophying effect over and over again over the last 10 years. And, and, and there's many factors that could be attributed to why that is happening. But the focus, of course, over the last three years, as, well as, as long as I've been there, has been to continue to reverse that trend. And I'm actually very proud to share that just this last year, about 47% of the dollars that were spent via FAS vehicles went to small businesses, which is an unprecedented number. So I'm very proud of the work that we've done. Similarly, new vehicles like 8A Stars 3, for example, about 50% of the vendors that got on board to 8A Stars 3 were first-timers to the federal marketplace, which is a great uh, number. So we're proud of the work that we've done. However, there's a meta trend going on. And uh, what I would say is that it's a combination of a lot of M&A activity that's happened over the last few years in the marketplace that have um, you know, accelerated the graduation of certain small companies into large companies. Secondly, the requirement to be part of the federal marketplace continues to also grow higher. Part of that is based on the cybersecurity environment that we're living in. So a company that historically didn't have to comply with certain mandates like the 800-171 compliance or uh, DFAR compliance and things like that now have a very significant barrier to entry. And when you start thinking about additional requirements like FedRAMP and CMMC, at some point, companies start to question whether the market access is worthwhile. Uh, is there enough business on the other side for the investment that needs to be made? Yeah, that's something so, I wanted to ask you about, too, the constant layering on of requirements for federal contractors, whether it's in so-called diversity and equity or carbon or, as you mentioned, cybersecurity getting more stringent, labor practices. It comes from a couple of different agencies that oversee this. Is it just getting to be to the point where people say, who needs this? I, I, I certainly think that that is a real risk. And in fact, it's not the first time we're looking at it. We've been, we've been thinking internally and talking about it for many years now. All these um, additional requirements come from a good place. Right. Uh, the, the government wants to drive the right kind of behaviors through federal acquisition policy. And those behaviors are driven by different quarters. However, they're all intended before, for the right reasons. We obviously want to serve the environment and save, uh, you know, uh, address comply, uh, climate change. We want to make sure that small businesses have a fair shot. We want to create jobs. We want to support labor agreements that support uh, labor unions. All those things are intended to create more jobs in communities where they're needed. However, when you layer all of them together, the overall cumulative effect uh, can be fairly burdensome. Now, we go through the federal rulemaking process that does allow for calculation of additional burden that gets added whenever we pass policy. 
And so we do take that count very, very closely. However, um, I do think that that still also happens in a case-by-case -case basis. So you may have one rule that goes through and the burden, additional burden is determined to be manageable, but then an additional, the next rule comes in and the next rule comes in. And I don't think we've done a full scope of what the total cumulative effect is. So I do think that especially for small businesses, it can uh, it can pose a fairly big challenge. Uh, as an example, uh, you know, there's been conversations around collecting scope two and scope three emissions data from different companies depending on their size. Now that's not an easy exercise to go through. If you're a company that's, that's even if you're a large company, going through scope three emissions uh, auditing and uh, calculation is a fairly lengthy process and a fairly burdensome process. So uh, I do think that while the intentions are good, the government needs to constantly think about lowering that burden because it's working against the goal that we have of diversifying our marketplace. And ultimately, if we don't have diversity in that marketplace, we don't have enough competition, and then it leads to the counterintuitive uh, outcomes of having fewer players, lower competition, higher prices, low, fewer options. So this is a moment where I think it's going to be the challenge of the next decade is how do you actually balance out the need for diversification of the marketplace against the need for driving social policy agenda items through acquisition. We are speaking with Sonny Hashmi. He recently left government as commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service at the General Services Administration. The contracting and acquisition workforce itself, the 1102s in particular, but the whole panoply of people that actually get involved in getting things into the government. What kind of training will they need? What are the skills needed in this year and beyond you feel will need some development or education and training? Yeah, and that's another uh, very good point, right? Because on the one hand, the sophistication and the skills that uh, that workforce needs to have to balance out these sophisticated uh, decision points is increasing constantly. You know, 1102 that has to make a decision around following, uh, you know, Made in America regulations or evaluating carbon uh, impact of a particular procurement decision. Uh, you know, these are highly specialized uh, knowledge areas that require constant training and upskilling. At the same time, we are seeing an atrophying of 1102s in the, in the workforce. It's getting harder and harder to recruit 1102s. There are fewer and fewer of them in the marketplace, and the need has been higher than ever before. Now, at GSA, we uh, took a very bold step to completely rethink how we recruit and train and um, retain 1102s uh, moving forward. And I'm very excited about some of the work that's going to be coming in FY24, which basically lowers the barrier for entry for people to come become part of the 1102 workforce. But then we take on the responsibility over a two-year period to give them the training that's needed, but also give them on-the-job, uh, hands-on experience and then create basically a career path for them all the way through their career. So that really looks, you, look like, you look at the longitudinal investment in an individual's career and build them into this. And in fact, instead of giving them all the training up front, you know, basically have a basic level of certification, but then have highly specialized kind of modules that they can invest in. So if you want to grow into cloud, you can be specialized in cloud. If you want to grow into sustainability, you can have specialization in sustainability. However, that is just one part of the problem. The other side is that the data that we are now seeing and the volume of that data, no human can process all of that data. We are seeing, for example, at GSA, contract modifications that may have 10 or 20,000 line items. No human is going to go through 10 or 20,000 line items to make sure that each one of those line items is compliant, is secure, it meets all the checks and balances. 
In fact, for every one of those product changes, we go through about 42 different checks from cybersecurity, supply chain, sustainability, all these kind of different angles. And so we have been relying heavily, more and more heavily on automation and technology to solve that problem, including the application of artificial intelligence. Through a lot of analysis, through a lot of collection and management of data and getting it in the hands of the people, the vision that we have been trying to achieve, and largely we are there, is that the acquisition official actually gets a report from the computer saying, of these 20,000 line items, these four require further analysis because they potentially have some risk, they potentially don't have the right uh, you know, certifications, et cetera. And so that person can apply their knowledge and their experience on a subset of problem areas that actually require human intervention. And so that is gonna be the new challenge, that is gonna be the new opportunity. That's why I keep going back to, this is a data problem. If you can manage, collect, align, harmonize, and use that data, then you can apply machine learning and machine expertise to it in combination of human expertise to really drive the right outcomes. And you have to have, I guess, a risk management approach even to that because, God forbid, you miss something and you end up giving Absolutely. a contract to someone who didn't comply with the latest subparagraph of some regulation. It's not the end of the world. Just say, hey, get compliant. Yeah. How do we find it? How do we continuously monitor for it? How do we have a path to goodness? Because uh, many companies don't uh, uh, not comply malicious reasons. They, you know, there there's a lot of complexity, and sometimes, uh, like you said, mistakes get made. So you need to have a path for a company to correct that uh, issue and uh, and get back into good standings. And then, of course, there are going to be instances of fraud or areas where we need to take uh, adverse action and how do we get ahead of that. Certainly, that's that's going to be the goal. And like I said, we have about, like in FAS, we manage about 74 million products in our marketplace. So if you can imagine 74 million products, each with its metadata around where it was manufactured, what the carbon impact is, is it sold, who sells it, are they authorized to sell it, where it gets from, where it gets stored, does it connect to the network? Like all these different metadata elements for each one of these elements, products need to be managed because all those data points then help decide whether this product is safe for a particular application or not. Uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a daunting challenge. And uh, so I don't, I don't minimize uh, the complexity of it. Uh, I wrote an article in uh, the NCMA magazine a few couple of years ago where I called it the challenge of the decade, and it truly is. And how do we manage our supply chain in light with all of these kind of priorities that we're trying to apply into our acquisition landscape and uh, ultimately becomes a massive data automation and intelligence challenge. Sonny Hashmi recently left government as commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service at the GSA. Thanks so much for joining me. Tom, thank you so much. Always a pleasure and I look forward to the next time. All right. And we'll look forward to seeing where you have landed. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is 
And, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week 
and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? 
Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins 
who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're Thank you. uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.